Now, you can turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. We're starting a new series in Malachi called God on Trial, and Kyle Patterson made that graphic, which is just incredible. So thank you to Lauren and Kyle and Nathan for working on that. Uh, Malachi is the last book in your Bible, in your Old Testament, rather, and the first book before Matthew. The love of God is the absolute greatest topic anyone could ever devote their lives to exploring. It is incomprehensible and accessible at the same time. It's like a tide pool shallow enough for a child to splash around in. And it's an ocean at the same time, too deep to fathom. The love of God is not sappy or sentimental. The love of God is not one-dimensional. It's warm and it's comforting, but it's also fierce and vengeful. God's love makes us worship and admire and enjoy him, and God's love makes us tremble. It's not one-dimensional and it's not simple, but it is the greatest thing we could devote our minds to. And that's what the book of Malachi opens with. And that's what we're going to explore uh, this morning together. But first, uh, we need to introduce Malachi because we've been in Genesis for like a year, year and a half um, with some little breaks here and there. But we're going to do this whole book in one chunk before Christmas. And so let me introduce you to Malachi. He is one of the minor prophets. Now, there's major prophets, minor prophets. That's not a... Um, they're, they're categorized by size. That's all that means. It's not like there's better prophets and worse prophets. So the minor prophets are the group of 12 little books that kind of all stuck together when the uh, scribes were putting together the scriptures thousands of years ago. And Malachi is the last book in the Protestant Old Testament. So it's the last book before you get to Malachi. Now, the, the Hebrew Bible, Jesus' Bible, if you will, when he was on earth, um, was broken into three sections, the Torah, the, so the law, the prophets, and the writings, right? Moses, from the law, wrote those five books. The prophets are categorized by Elijah, and then the writings are the Psalms and wisdom literature. And Malachi also ended the second section of those collections. It was the last of the book of the prophets. So in a sense, this book is intended to gather up the entirety of the Old Testament and hold it before you in the simple, clear way so that we can stand in anticipation of the Christ. It's a remarkable book. Now, he's writing around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in what we call the post-exilic period, because it happened after the exile. So the you know, Jews were carried into Babylonian captivity and were there 70 years, and when they get back, that's when Malachi's writing. So I know we left off in Genesis, and that happened a really long time before the writing of the book of Malachi. So I'm going to do my best to give a quick synopsis of what has happened since we left off uh, in our Genesis series. So we left off with Jacob, and I don't know if this is going to be helpful for you or not, but I tried to get it in order. We, we left off with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, twin brother of Esau, and Jacob's family went down to Egypt, and they were there for 400 years, and they wound up as slaves to Pharaoh. Then God raised up Moses, and he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. We call that the Exodus. 
after Moses was Joshua. And Joshua led the people into the promised land, and they defeated the enemies that were in the land. But after many years in the promised land, the people said, we're, we want a king like the other nations. First they got Saul, that didn't go well. Then they finally got King David. Now David's son, one of his many sons, Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, also became king after David was king. And Solomon is known for a lot of things, writing in you know Proverbs and perhaps Ecclesiastes, but he's best known in the Bible for building the temple. You see, Moses had a tabernacle, a tent set up that was kind of mobile, but God said, I'm going to put my name in this one place and anchor it down. And so Solomon built this beautiful, massive temple. We call it Solomon's temple or the first temple. Now what's Remarkable about that is when Solomon built the temple, he dedicated it and and prayed and offered sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I'm not talking an abstraction. That's not poetic. It was visible. It was tangible. The people were quaking and trembling and rejoicing. It was amazing. God in all of his glory came down to dwell in the midst of his people. That was the first temple. And things seemed to be going pretty well. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over. And in Rehoboam's time, things did not go so well. And the kingdom of Israel, which was united under now their third king, fourth king, split in two. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The northern kingdom, we called, it still remained, it retained its name, Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. So if you're ever reading in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, you've got to understand the kingdom has been split in two now. And these are two separate nations that often oppose each other and ally with different people. So Rehoboam becomes king in the southern kingdom. Jeroboam, confusingly, becomes king in the northern kingdom. Now, after many years of idolatrous worship, the northern kingdom, Israel, is finally taken into exile by Assyria. It's around 732, 733 BC. Uh, If you've read the book of Isaiah, that's what Isaiah is mostly talking about in the first chunk of the book, is Isaiah is saying, Israel is going to be carried off, and and this is how this is going to go. So that's the first exile here, Israel, the northern kingdom in exile, 733 BC. Years later, Judah, the southern kingdom, was also taken into exile, this time by Babylon. That was 586 BC. Now, something important happened at 586 BC for our text. This isn't just interesting information, although I do thoroughly love these things, because our faith is historical. But for our text, to understand the book of Malachi, you need to understand that when Babylon was destroying Jerusalem, and its people were at their most vulnerable and were fleeing to get away from being murdered or carted into slavery, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, who lived nearby, pounced on them. They backstabbed them. They caught the fleeing uh, Jews and turned them over to Babylon. It was an awful betrayal, a stunning tragedy. Jacob's brother Esau stabbing him in the back. So hold on to that one. Now, 70 years later, they returned from exile, Um, but it was a partial fractured return. They didn't come back united into two kingdoms or even one kingdom. They came back just broken and old and tired. 
And there were just a few of them. And what they came back to were the ruins of a once glorious land and the rubble of a once beautiful temple that was filled with the glory of the living God. So they came back and they began rebuilding the temple. Now we call this the second temple. This is the temple that Jesus would have essentially walk in many years later, the second temple. And when they finished construction and they prayed and they dedicated the temple and they offered sacrifices, the glory of the Lord did not come down and fill that temple. And the old men who could remember the glory of Solomon's temple wept. That's when Malachi's written. Can you just feel the, the sort of depression, the like broken spirit of this people? Like, yeah, we're free, but we're still under Persian rule. We don't have a king. That's when Malachi is written. It's written as a series of disputes. I think there's six disputes in general. It takes on kind of a legal courtroom character. And as, uh, as these disputes unfold, what happens is a bit ironic. The people of Israel put the judge of the universe on trial, and they stand in the seat as judge. And as God makes his defense, he exposes their disobedience and corruption and also provides concrete hope for a bright future in Christ. So each sermon in this series, I think six, seven, I didn't count, is going to be on one of those disputes and hopefully can help keep us focused on what that, that topic is. So here's the roadmap for where we're going today from the first five verses of chapter one. In four points, we're going to talk about the claim, the prosecution, the defense, and the verdict. So let's now read, given that context, let's read Malachi 1 and dive in. Malachi 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle of the Lord, the oracle of the word of the Lord, excuse me, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So number one, the claim. God's first words in this last book of our Old Testament are profound. I have loved you. Now, between Malachi and the birth of Jesus is a 400-year span of silence from God. Painful silence. No prophets, no writings, no visions. Where's God for 400 years? And as Israel slips into these centuries of silence, God whispers, I love you. I have loved you. That's what he's burdened for them to know. And I want to be clear uh, right off the bat that when God says you read in your, whatever Bible you read in the ESV, it says, I have 
loved you. And that reads like the past tense, like something that used to be true. But that's not what it means in Hebrew. That's not what the Bible's saying. This is a Hebrew perfect tense verb, which means something was true in the past, continues to be true now, and will go on being true. I have loved you. I do love you. I will continue loving you. God's love for his people is unchanging. No other love is unchanging. You might love your husband or your wife, but your love is changing. My love is changing. The things that you loved five years ago, you don't love anymore. But God's love is unchanging. Why? Because God is love. And God is unchanging. He's the everlasting God. There's no shadow or variation due to change in his nature. So when he sets his covenantal love on a... It does not go away. (laughs) God is unchanging. His love is unchanging. Let that comfort your soul. When you hear God's I love you, let it, allow it to echo into the days when you don't feel it. When you go through seasons of silence, and you will, you probably have, go back to the I love you that he's already spoken in his unchangeable word and bank on it. You can. God never changes. His love never fades, and he does not give up on his people. So when Jesus, when, when God, the Godhead, three persons in one God before the foundations of the earth, chose to send the second person of the Trinity, the most glorious being in existence, into a yet-to-be-created world to die a miserable death bearing the wrath of God for you, when that happened, before everything, he loved you. He was loving you. And when the God who created the universe, the word of God himself, hung on a cross... For you, he was loving you. When the Spirit of God drew you in your lifetime to himself and you became a Christian, you were born anew in Christ, he was loving you. And when, perhaps, you turned your back on him and went your own way, as I have done, he loved you. And he will. Because God's love is unchanging. That's how Malachi begins. That is God's burden and oracle for his people. He says, Malachi, tell them that I love them. That's the claim. Point number two, the prosecution. Have you ever met a dog who's been rescued from an abusive home? I think you guys have probably recently, haven't you? What does a dog do, a rescue dog, when you go to pet it? It flinches away. From the very hand that would show it love, it's afraid. It doubts. It distrusts. Israel, after all they've been through, are flinching away from the loving hand of God. 
Look at verses one and two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? That's the tone, right? It's not like, how do you love me? Let me count the ways kind of thing. It's not, it's not lovely. It's, it's, they're hurt and they're accusing him and they're questioning him and God is on trial here. How have you loved us? We were overrun by Babylon, God. How have you loved us? We were betrayed by Edom at our most vulnerable. We spent 70 long years in captivity, and we finally came back and rebuilt the ruins of this temple by our own elbow grease, and your glory is nowhere to be seen. We have no kings. We have no armies. We have no hope. How have you loved us? That's a real question from a hurting people. And what do you expect God to say in return? What defense, what explanation do we expect God to make for himself? Or do we expect him to deign to say anything at all? Here's how he could have answered them. He could have said this, You were overrun by Babylon because I disciplined those whom I love. Edom betrayed you, but I fiercely avenge my loved ones. You spent 70 long years in exile, but my love is patient. My glory didn't fill your temple because I'm sending you a better temple full of my glory. You have no armies, but I am the Lord of hosts. You have no king, but, quote, I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. How do you expect God to defend himself to you? when you put him on trial because of the ruins of your life. It's not theoretical. We're all in these shoes one day. And what answer would satisfy you? Maybe you're there right now. Well, Israel is making a common mistake, one that I've made many times. They are gauging their sense. No, they're measuring God's love based on their circumstances. So for the married folks here, do you base whether or not you're married based on how married you feel today? No. We base it on the covenant vows we made in the presence of God on our wedding day. I might not feel married today, but I am. God loves us covenantally, perfectly and unchangeably, not on the basis of if we've earned it or if we feel like that's true today, but on the basis of his gracious and unchanging promises. God's love is eternal and much larger than our momentary circumstances that we just don't have the perspective or the magnitude of mind to understand. And that's not patronizing any specific one of us. That's saying we are creatures. How could we understand the mind of the creator? God is God. And you are you, as a friend of mine says. 
And that's actually a comfort, though we may tremble at it. So that's the prosecution. How have you loved us? Well, here's the defense, number three. Instead of answering the way that I kind of answered a a moment ago, um, God does provide these answers through the book of Malachi, but first he calls a witness to the stand. Edom, come forward. And as he's coming up, the the, the prosecution are flipping through their notes. If you've seen courtroom dramas, looking for, what do we know about Edom? Well, here's what we know about Edom. He's the nation that descended from Jacob's brother Esau. Remember? The Edomites. And God gave Edom, we learn this in Deuteronomy and Exodus, God gave them a big piece of land to own as their own possession. And when Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus, many years before this, God said, hey, like, don't, don't assume anything about that land. I gave that to, to Esau. That's not for you. But they needed to pass through it. They needed to pass through the land. And Edom said, no, nah, take a detour. They were very harsh and unkind and didn't allow even just passage through their piece of land. But even still, God said in Deuteronomy, I think 21, he says to Israel, you must not abhor Edom, for he's your brother. So when Babylon sacked Jerusalem, we already talked about this, Edom betrays his brother. You can read about it, perhaps you did this week, in the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's 21 verses. You'll love it. It's all about Edom. And if you didn't read that this week, that's okay. It's summed up in Psalm 137, verse 7. Here's what it says. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Edom was cheering for the demise of Israel, his brother. And after Edom betrayed Judah in 586, they're being carried into exile. A Babylonian king named Nabonidus came and destroyed Edom. This is about the time of Daniel. Very few of the Edomites were left, and they would never actually rebuild into a nation again. Now, with all that in mind, let's read again how God makes his defense to Israel's question, how have you loved us? Starting in the second half of verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, sidebar, the word hate here does not mean emotional disdain. That's usually what we mean when we say hate, right? That's not what this word means in this context. What he's saying, it's a word of action here. He's saying, my friend is my ally, and the enemy of my ally is my enemy. So he loves Jacob, his ally, and he hates Edom, the enemy of his ally. Does that make sense? 
Hate is a choosing word, an action word. It's about how God is treating them, not how he feels in his emotions about him. In other words, God's surprising defense of the claim that he loves his people is the God-ordained destruction of their enemy. That's not what I would expect. In verse 2, he says, isn't Esau Jacob's brother? Well, why does he say that? He says that because Israel needs to know that God's electing love is his free mercy. See, God chose Jacob in the womb. And that's before Jacob or Esau had done anything, good or bad. And by pointing to the twins, Jacob and Esau, God is reminding all of us, not just them, all of us forever, that our only boast is in Christ and his mercy. We cannot boast in ourselves. And therefore, we must never think that God chose us for salvation because we're better than somebody. That is not the case. Quite frankly, in the Jacob and Esau story, Esau is the bigger man. Paul picks up this point in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. He says, Though they were not yet born, talking about Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, their mother, was told, The older, Esau, shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now in Malachi uh, 1 again, verse 3, Malachi continues by pointing to two pieces of evidence for God's defense. Okay, the first piece of evidence is the historical evidence. God says, look around. How's Edom doing? You ask if I love you. I say, look for Edom. Didn't Nabonidus reduce them to rubble? That's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is a future certainty. In verse 4, if in the future Edom tries to rebuild, God says, I will wipe them out again. I will tear it down. I will not allow this backstabbing nation to exist as a nation any longer. It's done. I will see to it. Now, do you remember God's covenant promise with Abraham? God said, it's a big promise, there's lots of promises in it, but one of the most profound is God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In other words, God is telling his covenant people, I've got your back. And when people come up against you to oppress you and backstab you, I'm coming into the ring. Even if they deserve it. Remember, Israel was in exile as a discipline, as a punishment for their rebellion and their idolatry. They deserved, if I can say it this way, to be stabbed in the back. But God said, no, sir, not on my watch. God got their back. That's covenantal love. Remember, his love is warm and nourishing, but it's also fierce and vengeful. Praise God. Wouldn't we have it any other way? Some of us have been so hurt 
by real, like by humans, not theoretical hurt, that we can't imagine anything but their complete destruction as satisfying justice. And that might happen. But I tell you, one day we will all look on the crucified, risen Savior, and we will say, I am satisfied. Justice has been done. God has loved to the end. There will be justice. Now, many people today um, wrestle with the question of whether or not God really loves us, right? I mean, that's, you hear it on the, the, the pundits and, and the, the popular books and the Instagram uh, TikTok sensations or whatever. So here's God answering that question, and he does it with the doctrine of election. <laughs> that's crazy. What could be more countercultural than that? That's the doctrine that makes people mad, not the one that proves God's love. And I mean, let's be honest, no one in this room is wrestling with the question about like, well, where's Edom today? How's Edom doing? That will comfort me. That's not what we're here for. Here's what we're wrestling with. Is God's election fair? Why Jacob and not Esau? Why me and not my loved one? Is it fair? As N.T. Wright put it, and he doesn't believe this, this is him caricaturing. If God is a puppet master, why does he pull this string and not that string? What's fair there? Well, there's no easy answer. There is a clear answer. It won't explain it, but it's something. It's who says God is fair. Mercy is not fair. Here's what would be fair. We all get the fate of Edom. God tears down everything we build. And there's no hope. That's fair. That's equitable. Praise God for his mercy instead of putting him on trial for being unfair. He saved us. He didn't have to. It's his free mercy. God chose Jacob instead of Esau so that through Jacob's family, Israel, salvation might come to all the nations. This is really important, guys. God did not choose Israel so that he could save Israel and destroy everyone else. God chose Israel because he wants to save everyone else. That's the election of God. In his wisdom, God has not put uh, a green sticker on the shirt of everyone who is elect. I actually tremble to think what we would do if that were true. Isn't that wise of God to not show us? Imagine you walk around the world and knowing us and how not godlike we are. If we see someone who doesn't have the green sticker, we just wouldn't give them the light of day. So God in his infinite wisdom and grace has kept that secret from us so that we can actually love like Jesus here. And Jesus loves freely and mercifully. So we don't know walking around this world who's elect. And the only way we know we are is if we believe on Christ and love Jesus. 
than we know. The question is, why have we been elect? It's so that we might offer Christ freely to all people. Not so we can be an insider's club. We, election happens so that mercy gets to prevail, not fairness. And it's so that no one may boast in their own works, but instead tremble at the free and mighty love of God. That's God's defense. Number four, lastly, the verdict. So in our last verse, uh, Edom steps down from the witness stand and God calls one more witness in his defense. Now look at verse five with me. He says, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We remember the historical evidence. You already know what happened to Edom at the hand of Nabonidus. And now God points to the future certainty and says, your eyes, you will witness. Israel is witness and we are witness that if Edom tries to rebuild, God will tear down because enough is enough. So I ask you, where is the nation of Edom today? Any Edomites in the room? It does not exist. But that's not the end quite yet of Edom's story in the Bible. It's very interesting, actually. Uh, Herod, you remember Herod, good old Herod. When Jesus was born, Herod had uh, all the babies two and under wiped out, uh, all the male babies wiped out in Bethlehem. That Herod. He was an Edomite, Roman historians tell us. An Edomian from Edom. And Herod's grandson was Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa I, also an Edomite. You can read in Acts chapter 12 that he received glory from people as king over this region and did not give glory to God, so God killed him on the spot, tore him down. One more Herod, Agrippa II. He died in AD 100. Get this. You remember what happened in 70 AD, right? Rome completely destroys Jerusalem and decimates the temple, never to be rebuilt again to this day. That was it. It was the end of the Jewish religion as they knew it. No more temple sacrifices, no more festivals. Over. And as Rome invaded Jerusalem and started laying it to waste, Herod Agrippa II, the Edomite, betrayed the Jews again for the last time and helped Rome sack the city. And when he died, that was it. That's the end of the line. No more rebuilding efforts. The legacy of Edom is now ruin and rubble. God is a God of his word. And he's kind enough to give us real historical evidence of his word and of his love and of his justice. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So God's love, as God's covenant people, God's love surrounds you. God's got your back. 
God protects you. That's the verdict. You will get justice from your enemy. Certainly. And by his his electing love, it's not a scary doctrine. It's free mercy. It's free mercy. So that free mercy might be shown to all. Ephesians 1 begins with a beautiful doxology about God's election of us in Christ, and he concludes in verses 9 and 10 by giving us the why for election. Hear this, that he elected and saved us, quote, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time in order to unite all things to himself, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is merciful so that through you, he might be merciful to the world. Beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the walls of this church, God's plan in saving some is that we might go with wide open arms and the free love and mercy of Christ and that the nations may come in. Great is the Lord in the whole earth. That's the goal. So when we reflect on God's love for us, we say great great is the Lord. When we see his electing grace and his free mercy, we say, great is the Lord. When we see his powerful love coming to the defense of his people by defeating their enemies, great is the Lord. His love is not sappy and sentimental. It's fierce and wonderful. Jesus says this in John's gospel. You'll probably know the first half. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you know that was the second part of that verse? John 3.16 is great. John 3.17 is glorious. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came so that they might be saved through him. So God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but rather to be condemned and thereby condemn sin, condemn Satan. Paul says that on the cross, what looked to the world like an expression of weakness as God died was actually putting to open shame the devil, triumphing over your enemy more profoundly than Edom was reduced to rubble. That is historical evidence of God's love for you. It's on a cross where your enemy was defeated. And one day, one day, our future certainty, that great snake and enemy of your souls will be bound, trampled, and cast into a lake of fire. And as he goes, he will be weeping and gnashing his teeth at all the countless souls that he lost to the brave son of God who rescued them from his grip by his free and mighty love. Your own eyes shall see this. Great is the Lord. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for the table. Father, we do tremble. 
You are great. We misuse that word when we use it about anything else. We don't understand your love. We don't understand your wisdom. We don't understand your election. We don't understand your justice. And we certainly don't understand your timing. But we trust you. And we thank you for your love. And I ask now that as we look back to our historical evidence at the table of Christ, that you would feed our souls and that you would lower our defenses so we can put down the gavel and step down from the judge's bench and just receive your embrace and your mercy instead of your defense.